Olakai is a Hawaiian-inspired footwear brand that has made it their mission to make the most comfortable shoes for all life's adventures. They have been asked for years by people who love their shoes, look, you guys do a great job, when are you finally going to make golf shoes? Last year they said, okay, you twisted our arms and they finally did it. What happened? They went out and made some of the most comfortable golf shoes ever made. They took the DNA from their normal shoes that makes them so comfortable, including dual density, removable and washable footbeds, a foldable heel so you can transition from course to clubhouse seamlessly, and they added reinforcement and soft spikes to enhance golf performance. They have three great styles in their men's line. Two sporty styles, including the Kapalua Blues and the Wele Whites. How do I know that so well? Well, they sent me a pair, one of each, and they are not just comfortable, they are gorgeous shoes. You can wear them on the course, you can wear them with khakis, with jeans, with shorts. They really go anywhere, and I've gotten a ton of compliments on them. And they also have one classic style with waterproof leather. Get this, they also have two women's styles as well. The golf shoes haven't even been out that long. They already have thousands of reviews, and they have a 4.8 star rating. So don't wait any longer, okay? Try out a pair for yourself today at olakai.com. That is O-L-U-K-A-I.com. If I asked you to think of the weirdest men's major of your lifetime, and you can define weirdest however you want, where does your mind go to? I chewed on this one the other day for a little while, and my first thought was Shinnecock. It's got to be Shinnecock. I have these vivid memories of Phil Mickelson raking his putt before it stopped. Zach Johnson, you may remember after his round, very serious, saying, They've lost the golf course. You know, at the very least, that was a weird day. I think it was early in the week. I don't know if it ended in a very weird way, though. Next, I thought of Chambers Bay, the bumpy greens. I think they called those the broccoli greens. I was at that one. It ended with Dustin Johnson's three putt. That's kind of a strange finish. And when you think of bizarre finishes, the one that always comes to mind, and you have to mention in this conversation, Carnoustie, 1999, John Vandeveld. I think they could play golf for another 500 years. You might not see a finish like that one again. Personally, I think I'm going to forget the names of my own family before I forget the name John Vandeveld. That's going to live up there permanently. At that point, my memory kind of dried up, so I took it to Twitter, and they had some great answers there. The first thing a lot of people said was the obvious one that I didn't think of. Well, it was pretty weird to have the COVID majors. Morikawa at the PGA, DJ when he won the Masters in November. No fans in the galleries, and that's a great point. That's pretty singular. I don't know when you're going to see that again. Hopefully never, right? Because that would mean have another plague or something, <laughs> something like that. You don't want that again. Other people brought up whistling straights and the whole waste area uh, debacle that cost DJ potentially a major. It's kind of funny there. You know, you hear DJ's name more often than you should with his stuff. I mean, even if you were stretching a little bit, his U.S. Open win, didn't they penalize him in the middle of the final round? That was pretty weird, right? And speaking of rules violations, one thing I thought of based off that, and this was before my time, but Roberto DiVincenzo screwing up his scorecard to lose the Masters. That was 1968. That's pretty singular, that one. So the answers were really good. You know, other ones, people reminded me, Tom Watson coming out of nowhere to almost win the 2009 Open. He would have been the oldest winner by like a decade. Two people, including Brendan Prunty, a writer I enjoy, he brought up the U.S. Open from that same year, Beth Page. Lucas Glover won on Monday that time. There was mud and terrible weather. Others brought up the 2011 PGA Championship when Keegan Bradley got in the hunt. He got within two of Jason Duffner. Then he triple bogey 15 to ruin his hopes entirely, except somehow he still ended up winning. And he did it with an anchored putter, which he can't use now. In that same vein, others brought up the U.S. Open at Southern Hills when Stuart Sink missed an 18-inch putt to miss a playoff. Rateef Goosen three-putted on the last hole, but still managed to win the playoff. Obviously, you've got Greg Norman in 96, just for the sheer unbearable pain of that Sunday. Hard to watch still. And here's one I didn't know about. In the 1985 U.S. Open, the two guys who finished a stroke behind the winner, Andy North, those guys were T.C. Chen and Dennis Watson of Zimbabwe. Each of them were assessed a penalty on Sunday. That wouldn't be a penalty today. T.C. Chen had a double hit. Watson got one for taking too long over a putt. But a Twitter user named Antifaldo, some of you I'm sure follow him. It's always a little weird to say an anonymous Twitter name out loud <laughs> on a podcast. Antifaldo. Uh, but he and a couple other people 
also went back to Chambers Bay, which I had thought of, but they reminded me just how weird it actually was the entire week. And the funny thing is I missed some of it because I was there covering it. It's a weird thing to say, a very modern problem. You know, being on site at a major championship means you don't see all the stuff they get on TV. But he and a few others reminded me there was a big fire that week. There were trains along the water. Uh, other people, you know, mentioned Brendan Grace's meltdown, the going OB on the par three, the weird coverage from Fox that week. I think this was Greg Norman's one and only chance in the broadcast booth. I remembered once they brought it up, I remembered the marshal who held up a you know quiet please sign to a train. That was one of the funniest single images. Gary Player gave this odd monologue, which is so funny to watch now on TV. Jason Day got vertigo. Billy Horschel kind of ripped the USGA after he almost melted down on the course. He took a swing on the green at one point. Jordan Spieth called number 18. The dumbest hole I've ever played in my life. And he ended up winning because of 18. I mean, this has to take the cake, pound for pound, Thursday through the very end of Sunday. What's more bizarre than Chambers Bay? It's a fun question to think about if you're a golf fan, but... I think I've got one that none of us were alive for. No human being on the planet Earth today in 2023 was alive for this. That might beat them all. And it's one of those events from the distant past where you think, man, imagine if social media were around then. Or in this case, even normal media, because this took place in 1876. And no matter how weird things got then, the papers weren't saying much more than you know, this person won, this person lost. Here were the strokes they took to get around. You could have an alien invasion during a final round of a major, and they wouldn't mention it. That's how dry the coverage was, typically. So you have to really mine what sources you have, both contemporary ones at the time and what people said or wrote later. But this one is a gem, and it's beyond strange. In 1876 at St. Andrews, a man named Davy Strath, who was snake bit at this event, had his big chance to win. And it would turn out to be his last chance to win the Open Championship, and it was all coming down to a Monday playoff. And Davy Strath, with his legacy on the line, chose not to play. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. And last time we did our Young Tom Morris podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. And we're staying pretty much right in that same place in time. Scotland, mid to late 1800s. We left you last time with Young Tom passing away on Christmas Day, or it might have been Christmas Eve, 1875. The main events of this podcast happened less than a year later, early October, 1876. And they revolve around a man who is Young Tom's good friend. Some say it was his best friend, Davy Strath. You know, based on how deep you are into golf history, let's put it this way. There is a far greater chance that you know the name Young Tom Morris than you do Davy Strath. And for good reason. Young Tom won four Open Championships. He was the first one ever to win three in a row. Obviously, his father is very famous. Probably the most famous man in golf history before 1900. And overall, Young Tom was more successful. But Davy Strath is an interesting guy. And he was a hell of a golfer. That's the thing I think we need to cover up top right away is that if you were alive in this time and place, if you lived in Scotland, whether you're in Edinburgh or St. Andrews, or even in England in this whole Victorian era, once guys like Old Tom or Willie Park Sr., once that generation is past their prime, there are three guys considered the absolute best in the world. They even call them the three kings of golf. That's young Tom Morris, Jamie Anderson, who became the second person to win three straight Opens, and this third guy, Davy Strath, who never won any. This is, you know, to use a joke that I remember being prominent when I was a kid, there may have been an SNL sketch about it, but Davy Strath is the third tenor, right? You know, you have the three tenors, you've got Luciano Pavarotti, Placido Domingo, and, well, who's the third guy? I can never remember his name. It's Jose Carreras, for the record. Let's give the man his due. But Davy Strath, that's Davy Strath. He's Jose Carreras. He's the third king of golf at that time, and he wins plenty, plenty of tournaments, but you don't really know him now. And I think what's remarkable about Strath, and it is his unique historical legacy. You know, in the last podcast, we talked about how young Tom was the first modern professional golfer in the sense that he wasn't caddying. He wasn't making clubs or balls for people. wasn't even designing courses. He wasn't a servant. You know, his old man, old Tom, for as famous as he was, he couldn't even go in the clubhouse of the RNA. The pros were lower class. 
Young Tom was the first guy who just played golf for money, set his own price, and achieved not just fame, but relative wealth by virtue of how much people wanted to see him and how often he won. He was a touring pro, period. Didn't do anything else, and he changed everything. But Davy Strath, he might have been the second pro. That's arguable, but he was the first one, and bear with me here, but I think he was the first modern pro with some real skin in the game. What I mean by that is that young Tom, we talked about his dad you know, being second class to some degree, but his dad was also incredibly famous. And by the standards of the time, maybe not a rich man, but a pretty well-off man, and miles ahead of his contemporaries in the labor force of the time, speaking economically. Old Tom made more money by far than his own parents, who were weavers, would ever have. More money than he had any right to be making, as measured by where he was born and in what class. So, young Tom went to good schools. He grew up on the golf course. Wasn't exactly, you know, silver spoon stuff, like some lord on a manor somewhere, but he had a nice upbringing. And once it was clear how good he was at golf, there wasn't much standing in his way. It was very natural for him, even though it was somewhat unprecedented, to enter that life. He's almost entitled to it. The timing is right worldwide. And he didn't fail, but if he had, what would the consequence have been, right? He becomes a golf pro like his dad. There's a safety net there. And he has his father to thank for that. Davy Strath is not dealing with the same hand of cards. If young Tom Morris is born holding a royal flush to torture this poker metaphor, Strath, when he goes pro, is chasing a straight. Because similar to young Tom, he was born to working class parents who made good. But here's the big difference. Life off the golf course had afforded Davy Strath the chance to move out of his class. What you have to understand is the dream. Okay, now here's the issue with learning a lot about Strath's non-golf life. There is a book about him and his family. It's called The Golfing Strath Family of St. Andrews. And it's all yours if you want to pay the low price of 99 pounds and have it shipped to you. I'm sure it's a good book. I've read passages of it, but it's not very accessible. There are no digital copies, nothing like that. And there's this interesting subset of golf books that are just like this. They're kind of these rarefied tomes, limited edition, only so many copies printed, the whole thing. And it seems like they're almost made for collectors. It's kind of hard to say. But Stephen Proctor, who we mentioned last time, he's the author of Monarch of the Green, the young Tom Morris book. He also wrote The Long Golden Afternoon, which came out recently, which is a great book about the development of golf in its early professional days. Those books are accessible. There's a good amount about Strath in his Tom Morris book. And Proctor was also kind enough to send me passages from the other more inaccessible Strath book. He sent me those passages about the 1876 Open that we're going to talk about today. I say that he actually photographed them, sent them over Twitter DM. He's quickly becoming a good friend of the podcast. We're indebted to him, so thank you, Stephen. And from him, we know that the Strath family, Susan, the mother, was the daughter of a farmer. The father, Alexander, was a construction contractor, and apparently a lot of his work was in plumbing. But he was a shrewd businessman, and he was lucky, because at this point in history, St. Andrews had kind of fallen into disrepair. It was this rundown thing, but it was being rebuilt. There was this big project to make it a, you know, a tourist center, somewhat based on golf, but it was a resort area in general. You know, you had the water there. It's on the east coast of Scotland. So they're building it up. And that means there's a lot of work for someone like Alexander Strath. And he did very, very well. His sons, and he had a lot of them, were apprenticed as plumbers originally. But he made enough money to send them to Madras College. When we say college, it's not like, you know, the U.S. college. This is like a nice high school. And in fact, that, that might not even be accurate. It's more like a nice middle school a kind of preparatory school that these kids go to until they're 14 years old. And what you have to understand is if you're a working class child at that time, most of you don't go to school beyond age 12. You need to go to work to bring the family money. But the Straths, they went until age 14. And Davy Strath, who we're going to talk about today, must have been the best of them all as a student because by hook or by crook, he landed the golden ticket. The one-way pass out of the working class. He got an apprenticeship as a law clerk. This is officially a step up. And he was in the unique position of, you know, if he pursues this and he's successful, which it seemed like he would have been, he could become a quote-unquote gentleman. He could be inside the big clubhouses. He could have extremely high status, make more money than anybody in his family had ever made, 
and basically lived out the dream of any laboring family at that time. Class mobility up to this point in history has not necessarily been a feature of life in the UK at that period in history. And you have to understand this as a great opportunity, not just for himself, but for future generations of his children and all that. This is what his parents were working for. They must have been thrilled. But guess what? If you go pro as a golfer, if you make that your vocation instead, you can kiss all that goodbye. And that's what makes Davy Strath different from young Tom. He is from the true working class. He has a path before him to something so much higher in the social and economic sense. But when he looks at the money young Tom is making as a professional golfer, when it comes time for him to choose, this is a mighty, mighty risk. You know, imagine him having to tell his parents. There's a funny part in Proctor's book that when he does go pro, the Fifeshire Journal, which is a Scottish newspaper, actually chimed in to call the decision, quote, foolish. So even the newspapers thought it was nuts. I don't know exactly why they're chiming in. I guess newspapers were different. Everybody's got an opinion back then. But here's the thing about Strath. He is a golf junkie. So are his brothers. His brother Andrew was a pro in the old sense. He did the whole schooling route, but he became an apprentice to old Tom at Presswick, a working man pro. Their brother George Strath would start the same kind of career in Scotland. Then he'd go on to America. He lived there the rest of his life, died at age 76 in New York. Andrew didn't live long. He actually won the Open Championship in its infancy, 1865. That was the sixth year it was held. He was the first winner not named Willie Park or old Tom Morris. But three years later, he died at age 30 of tuberculosis. He called it consumption then, and remember that detail. Now, all three of them loved golf. All three were very, very good at it, but nobody was as good as Davy Strath. This is the kind of guy who was so talented, so young, that he was one of the only people the bookies would back against young Tom. Now, remember from last podcast, gambling is the major engine of growth in golf in those days. You can't overstate that. It was the basis of the matches that were being held, the tournaments, everything that made these guys famous and made being a professional golfer in the modern sense, you know, we keep saying that that means, you know, that's all that you do, that made it economically viable. And Strath is two years older than young Tom, and from the time they're 15 and 17, they're having these matches one-on-one that are generating huge buzz, and that buzz is only going to get bigger over the next decade. That first year, 1866, the first time they met formally, young Tom won the first match, Strath got him back in the rematch, we're off to the races. So, 1868 comes along, young Tom had just pocketed his first Open Championship as a very young man, he's making a lot of money. Strath is noticing this and going, hey, I'm just as good, why can't I do that? We don't know his exact birthday, but he's either 18 or 19 by that point. And here's the other thing that might be pretty relatable to many of you out there. He hates his job. He doesn't like being an apprentice law clerk. Yeah, it's a straight path to being a gentleman, but he doesn't think he's going to like it much more when he's an actual law clerk. And when the time comes to decide what he's going to do in 1868, just ahead of this professionals tournament that's going to be held at St. Andrews, Davy Strath goes for golf. You know, in reading it historically, you kind of want to stand up and applaud at that point, but because you know what a risk it is, you know what a what a huge thing it is for him to do this, and how many people he's going to disappoint. You know, this happens. You have to imagine much to the chagrin of his family. You know, whoever's writing for the Fifeshire Journal it seems like a lot of people were saying, you know, don't do this. It's crazy. And it's funny to imagine that reaction today, isn't it? A guy who might be the second best golfer in the entire world. And popular opinion telling him, don't pursue that dream. Don't go for it. But he does pursue it, and it works. He's good enough that he right away is winning a lot of tournaments. He is featured in high-stakes matches, which is, you know, main way to make money for these guys. He's working the professional tour circuit at that time. And again, if you didn't listen to the last podcast, the reason the quote-unquote tour exists, if we can call it that, is because a lot of clubs are holding big events at their fall and spring meetings, and they want the best players in the world to come. They want young Tom Morris, they want Davy Strath, they want Jamie Ferguson, and they're going to pay to get them. You know, first they're going to pay by increasing tournament purses, and an early version of appearance fees isn't far off either. And in matches, of course, there's already a built-in appearance fee. If you want to play with Davy Strath, 
you pay for the privilege, whether you win or lose. And his name gets written up in newspapers. He has a profile far beyond Scotland into England. And, you know, we're skipping over a lot of stuff. We're not going to get too much into the individual wins and losses that he had. But simply put, he is a great player who took a big leap. First guy ever, arguably, to take that big leap, that big risky leap into professional golf. And the landing is soft. He's doing well for himself. In terms of his personality, what he looked like, things like that. I want to read you the passage from Proctor on Strath in this period of his life. As a young man, Proctor writes, quote, Tommy's best friend and chief rival was Davy Strath. Like Tommy, he was an educated man who cut a dashing figure. Tall and regal, with his hair swept straight back from his forehead and often a neatly trimmed mustache, Davy was that rare golfer that betters were prepared to back against the young prodigy in his prime. Davy's game was as elegant as his looks. His style was the very poetry of swing, the most perfectly graceful and easy that can be imagined, wrote Everard. You know, side note, Everard is a golf historian at the time. And Everard considered Davy one of the greatest players St. Andrews has ever produced, end quote. You can see a picture of Strath in that book. It's actually the same one you can find on his Wikipedia page if you want to check that out. And you can see exactly what Proctor means. There is a confidence there, maybe even something a little arrogant, a little cocky. Like young Tom, he had a swagger about him. And he ran in the same circles as young Tom. They formed a club together that was like this, think of it as like a halfway club between the you know, high muckety-mucks of the RNA and the working class club below them that in town, the laborers. You know, bottom line, these guys were studs. Let's just put it that way. Great golfers, superstars, very eligible bachelors, by the way, popular with everybody. Basically, if you were a young person in St. Andrews at the time, no matter what your class, these guys were the people you wanted to know. But there's something else about Strath I haven't said yet. It's something about his golf game. I've been waiting to deploy it, and you know it's important. And in terms of the 1876 Open, it goes beyond important. It becomes critical. Here's Proctor again. He writes, quote, Davy did have one glaring weakness, however. He was a highly strung, fidgety player who sometimes unraveled under pressure. That tended to be his undoing in matches with Tommy. End quote. Okay, so let's tackle this. Hard to call somebody a choker, right? Even 150 years ago. But even with the vague records, the fog of history, even if Proctor had never written that, it would have come through because you can see it in the results. And if choking under pressure, let's just put it bluntly, if that's his Achilles heel, the Open Championship is going to be his bet noir, the black beast that dogs him forever. He's too good a player, too elite a player not to have won one of these things, but he never does. Finishes second three times, played nine times, and he finished in the top five in almost all of them. Granted, there were far fewer competitors then, so you know, top five finish may not be exactly equivalent to what it is today, but it still really says something. If you wanted to compare him to a modern golfer, I think of somebody like Lee Westwood, Colin Montgomery, maybe Ricky Fowler. Guys who are there again and again, they're obviously very good, they're famous, they're, they do win, but they just can't do it in those really, really huge moments. There's something blocking them. Now, it is important to say this, though. When we look back in history at the Open Championship, you know, when we're scrolling back through Wikipedia going to, well, who won this thing back in the 1800s? We see a major right? Because it, it is a major, it becomes a major, but keep some history in mind here. It has to evolve to that point of prestige. You know, it is a prestigious tournament right away. I don't want to take anything away from it within limits, but when we see a major, we are considering it in the context of, you know, three other tournaments that didn't even exist then. And we're seeing it with a hindsight of 150 plus years. The open championship, as we understand it today, did have a certain amount of prestige back then, but it didn't have the weight that it has today, not even close. So it's not like people in Scotland, for example, would have been saying, oh, you know, Davy Strath can't win a major. That discourse wasn't happening. There was no sense of the open championship like we have today. Now, there's no doubt he wanted to win it. 
But if you had told him what it would become, this globally huge event that defines players' legacies, well, he might have wanted to win even more. But it wasn't like that. It was a big tournament among the pros. Maybe by this point, when he and Young Tom are competing, maybe it's the biggest tournament. But it's not like Strath thought that. Wow, in the year 2023, a podcast host from Golf Digest is going to be calling me a choker because I couldn't win this thing. No, that is not the case. 1869, he plays in his first Open Championship, finishes third. The next year, young Tom was trying to win for the third straight time, which would give him sole and permanent ownership of the red Moroccan leather belt that was the prize back then. This is two years before the Claret Jug is made. Strath shot a 49 in the second round at Presswick. This is a 12-hole course, which was phenomenal. It was the course record, in fact, or at least it had been until that morning when young Tom shattered it by shooting 47. So Strath is five shots behind young Tom going into the final round. The tall task, anyway. But he shot a 58, melted down a little bit. And that was a sign of things to come. Young Tom, of course, won that open. The next year they skipped it. 1872 comes around. And Davy Strath is at this point the only man who can deny young Tom winning his fourth Open Championship in a row. And here's what Proctor said about Strath at that period. Quote, By then, Davey had earned a reputation as the only player who could give Tommy a fair fight. Davey had beaten his gifted young friend in tournaments, singles, and foursomes. He'd also upstaged Tommy by being the first to win the gold medal awarded by the Rose Club. Let me interject here. That was, by the way, the social club we mentioned earlier that they started. Back to Proctor. Davey only beat Tommy once in every three tries, but he always made the champion work for his money, and no other golfer did nearly as well, end quote. Which is why he's making money, which is why he's succeeding as a professional. And at the 1872 Open, Strath came out to play. Didn't do so well in the first round, but it was windy with wet greens, and his 56 was enough for a one-shot lead over young Tom. Next round, he shoots 52. Young Tom shot a 56, so Strath had a five-shot lead going into the last round. Remember, this is Prestwick. It's only 12 holes, and nobody else is even close. This should have been Strath's moment. And you're going to hear those words again. Young Tom should say final round 53. Okay. Not bad, but not great either. Which meant all Strath needed was a 57 to win. But on the second hole, the nerves come. They always come for Davy Strath. He hits an iron shot that must have been very bad because it ended up costing him three strokes. And it doesn't get much better the rest of the round. And on the last hole, he hits one in the water and he comes in limping at 61, second place by three strokes to young Tom. A nightmare. Two more top tens in 1873 and 1875. And amidst all this, you have to understand, I've probably made the point at this point, but I do want to be clear. He's winning his fair share. In 1873, one of the most famous matches, let's call it, you know, one of two or three of the most renowned matches in the sport of golf before the turn of the centuries, it's held between him and young Tom. The coverage is outrageous. Strath is 24 at this point, young Tom 22. Earlier that year, they had sparred at the RNA meeting. They split a pair of singles matches. And so now the big one was set up. Three days, 36 holes, thousands of fans came out to watch. Newspaper coverage was crazy all over Scotland and England. Again, these guys are superstars. And Strath that first day is brilliant. He shoots an 81 on St. Andrews. The course record at the time was 77. He's four holes up on young Tom at the end of that day. The crowd is unruly, to say the least. You know, these are not your modern, more polite crowds. Bets are being taken. People are shouting. There are no ropes, so they're crowding the players on every shot. But the next day, young Tom wins all four holes back, so it's tied going into the last day. Strath goes down two holes early. Everyone thinks he's choking again, but he comes roaring back. He's playing brilliantly, and on the back nine, he turns it on, puts the foot to the pedal, and he shuts down young Tom, eventually finishes him off on the 16th hole. And it didn't get much bigger than this at the time. This would have been more important more money involved, higher stakes, maybe even more coverage, the whole nine yards, than the Open Championships. And if we talk about majors, probably Young Tom and Strath would both have said, you know, at the time, this is bigger than the Open. 
So, as much as we talk about Strath losing it under pressure, losing his cool, all that, and he does, he was good enough to win these really huge matches, too. And we can relate that to the modern guys we talked about, like Fowler or Montgomery. You know, Fowler was incredible under pressure when he won his Players' Championship. He made that late charge. Montgomery was a killer in the Ryder Cup, one of the best ever. They have their qualities. They come through in big moments sometimes. Young Tom and Strath had a rematch not long after. Young Tom won that one, got his revenge. He kind of always did that. He was always going to come out a little bit on top at the end. And Proctor wrote this, quote, The great matches of 1873 will be remembered as the moment when golf stopped being a mere Scottish pastime and took its place among Britain's popular spectator sports. The matches between Tommy and Davey were played just as sports were becoming an important aspect of Victorian cultural life. They captured the imagination of the masses, especially sportsmen in England, in a way no golf spectacle ever had. End quote. Sounds like a major to me, doesn't it to you? In 1875, young Tom loses his wife and the child she was carrying in the fall, and two months later on Christmas Day, he dies too. Probably a lung aneurysm, though there's some debate about that now among you know, medical people. And there's not much we know about the reaction of Strath to that death, but it doesn't take much to imagine he is heartbroken. He got married that year, 1875. Young Tom couldn't come because you know, his wife and child had died and he was grieving and there were specific traditions of mourning at the time. He kind of didn't leave the house. So 1876 rolls along. His best friend is gone. Strath is now 27. And three years earlier, the first open Rota had started. You know, an early version of what we understand today as the Rota. First 12 years, all of them were held in Presswick, but now it rotates between there, St. Andrews, and Musselburgh, outside Edinburgh. And in 1876, it was at St. Andrews. And this is where things got bizarre. Remember that sentence we said earlier, you know, 1872, this should have been Davy Strath's moment? Well, yet again, this should have been Davy Strath's moment. By this point, he was at North Berwick. He was going to expand their course to 18 holes. He was appointed as the pro there. This was all in the works. And he also started what is recognized today as the first golf retail shop. This is kind of an interesting little footnote in his life. Now, golf products have been sold before, obviously, but not in a dedicated store like this on what they call the high street, the main street. So count that as another first for Davy Strath. He was a pioneer even on the commercial side of golf. I mean, really, it was one of the first sporting goods stores, even if you want to go that far. So in July of that year, he and his wife Agnes had a son named Ronald. And Strath didn't actually play much golf that year because he's got a new job, a new kid. But he did go to the RNA's autumn meeting. He played matches that week. And of course, he was going to play the Open Championship at St. Andrews. His biggest competition that year would be from Old Tom, who's still going, Willie Park Sr., Mungo Park, his brother, and a guy named Bob Martin. Another strong pro from St. Andrews. This was the biggest field ever at the Open Championship. 34 players are there. But as David Malcolm and Noel Terry put it in the book I mentioned earlier, the golfing Strath family of St. Andrews, it was a shambles. And I don't mean the golf format shambles. I mean this was an absolute organizational mess, a disaster. The crowd was unruly from the start. They were concentrated largely on Strath. He was the heavy, heavy favorite. And the format was just two rounds at the time. You know, it would have been three rounds at Presswick the year before, but Presswick was a 12-hole course. So at St. Andrews, an 18-hole course, it's two rounds, 36 holes total. And both were set to be played on the same day. And in this case, that day, this is important, is a Saturday. Well, on a Saturday, guess what happens? Normally, everybody from town comes to play. Whether you're a laborer or a gentleman, an artisan, whatever you are, you're off at noon and you want to go play some golf. And this was September 30th, prime golfing season. You couldn't even play in the summer sometimes back then because they didn't have a good way to mow the grass if it got too high. And these people weren't about to give up a day of golf, open championship or no open championship. And by the way, that's probably the best way you can tell the difference in prestige between then and now. You know, imagine, you know, at Hoylake this year. 
No, the second round is delayed because we had to let the public go off, right? It's not, not going to happen. So the morning round that year at St. Andrews, it goes off okay because there's not really a ton of the public there yet. The citizens have not arrived. Davy Strath and Bob Martin both shoot an 86 to hold the lead after 18 holes. The afternoon is when all control is lost. You have the public playing. Nobody told them no. They can't tell them no, apparently. And you have this absurd situation where championship pairings are going off whenever they can in between the general public. So, you know, some, some guy, you know, Joe and his buddy, you know, Frank, the, the plumbers in town, they're teeing off. And then next you have Bob Martin, the pro who's trying to win the open championship. Then a couple more public people. And then maybe, uh, you know, Davy Strath goes off with old Tom. And they're all scrambling for the first tee and a chance to play. This is the public and the pros. There are no reserved tee times for them. It is a madhouse. Bob Martin and Tom Kidd go out first. It's all out of sequence, okay? So it's not like Bob Martin and Davy Strath are playing together because they're the two leaders. Nope, that's not happening. It's first come, first serve. Davy Strath gets off later. It's pandemonium. Because along with the public, remember, there's a massive crowd watching the pros, too. There's a gallery. So they have to wait on every hole. Everything's moving at a glacial pace. Everyone in the crowd is getting crazier and crazier. You have to remember, it's more like you know a modern soccer match, really. Or even better, a soccer match in the 80s where there are fewer rules and it's kind of more dangerous and loud. And this is the part in a lot of podcasts where I like to say, imagine that happening today, but you can't imagine it. This is impossible to imagine in a golf tournament. It wouldn't happen. Things are too well organized. This is mind-boggling stuff to go back and read. Through 13 holes of that second round, Strath kept it together. It's kind of hard to go back and do the math, but it seems like he had something like a five-shot lead. May have been even a little bit more. Then something happens on the 14th hole. Where well, remember when I said this was a weird major, the weirdest major? It's already weird by the 14th hole. I hope I'm making that point. But on the 14th, Strath hits his second shot. And it hits another man, a golfer known only to history as Mr. Hutton. Hits him square on the head. And Mr. Hutton is not a pro. He was one of these guys from town who came out to play with a few of his buddies while the Open was happening. He's a hat maker in town. He was on the fifth hole at the time, which is kind of parallel to 14. It's not clear if, you know, he had hit a bad shot and he was closer to 14 or if Strath, you know, some of the accounts you read say Strath's shot was a good one. So maybe he didn't pull it to five. Maybe, you know, Hutton was over on 14. Either way, he got hit in the head and he went down hard. He didn't recover for a little while. You know, eventually he did get up and he walked home. He didn't finish his round. And the crowd at this point had just about completely lost it. All the reports from that match, you know, the contemporary ones, talk about how, quote, excited they are. And you can interpret that to mean it was almost this mob mentality. Must have been an absolute nightmare to play in. Strath was clearly shaken by everything going on, but especially by hitting Hutton. He made a six on 14, made a six on 15. Martin, by this point, had gotten close to the end. He would finish with a 90. So Strath still, despite this little mini meltdown, Strath didn't have to do much to win. But here he was again, and the nerves come. You know, the fact that he basically knocked a guy out, the rabid crowd, it's all starting to get to him. Made a four on 16 to stop the bleeding. And going into 17 and 18, he needed two fives on the last two holes. You know, the road hole and, of course, the famous 18th across the Valley of Sin. He makes a pair of fives there or a four and a six or whatever. The championship is his. On 17, his drive is wayward. He has to punch back into the fairway. He ends up with a long shot into the green, but he smokes it. He gets another great shot. But guess what? There's players on the green. They hadn't finished. And now if you go read Wikipedia and a few other sources, it says he hits somebody again. You know, the book that I was talking about, the book about the Strath family doesn't say that, but other accounts that you read from, you know, future people in Australia, we'll get to them later, they say it hits somebody in the ankle, and it's hard to know what to think there. In any case, the ball stopped on the green, which surprised some people from behind who thought he'd hit it so well that it was going to go all the way to the road. But this begs the question, what is Strath doing at this point? You know, he already hit a guy in the head. Why is he hitting into an occupied green? 
Sounds like he had the wind with him. He must have known it was a possibility. You know, some people make excuses for him, and maybe they're right. But it is confusing. You know, is he so mad at the RNA that he's, you know, irritable and he's making a point? Is he nervous so that he's hurrying? Did he not see them on the green, which seems unlikely? You know, these are big moments for him. He's got this title to win, and he's close to doing it. Why is he hitting into an occupied green? Well, you know, it's one of those questions that is lost to history, unfortunately. But they get to the putting green. You know, nobody really says anything to him. None of these people on the green. He two putts. He makes a five. Now he just needs a five on 18 to win the thing. But he is incredibly rattled by that point. And he makes a six. It's unclear exactly how he made that six. There were references that, you know, he blew it in the short game. It does seem like he had a putt at one point to win. Don't know how far it was. But either he muffed a chip or he three-putted or something. But he ends up tying Bob Martin with a 90 after this unbelievable meltdown over the last five holes. And by rule, the two of them are set to play in a playoff on Monday. But after his round, something kind of sad, heartbreaking, and a little mysterious happens. One of the players on the 17th green that Strath hit into, he complains. Starts insisting to the RNA that he's got to be disqualified based on some rule they have that you can't hit into a green if players are there. Again, there is disagreement here. Was there an actual rule? Well, there was no specific rule, but there was some local thing that said, you know, if the green is occupied, you're not supposed to do it. So there may be grounds for disqualification. And remember, Bob Martin, his opponent, was also a St. Andrews guy. He was one of old Tom's good friends, his apprentice. And it may have been a Bob Martin contingent, his supporters, who kind of provoked this protest. Then another little bit of controversy springs up, and this is about Strath's scorecard. And this is really unclear. Still no idea what this means. They seems like they accused the marker of messing it up somehow. It's not an accusation on Strath, but there may be some inconsistencies. But we don't know much more about that. It was eventually resolved with no penalties, so probably there was nothing there. But you throw that all into the confusion at the time, and what we've got is a state of absolutely pure chaos. The RNA deliberates for hours. At 7 p.m., they say, okay, we're going to have this playoff Monday, but it's under protest. What that means is we haven't reached a final decision yet. And that's pretty absurd on its face, right? You're going to have these guys play for the Claret Jug, but then if Strath wins, you still might take it away from him if, if that's the decision you make. What we can say here is that that day, as the authors put it, Strath was, quote, a victim of his popularity. End quote. You know, he had a lot of trouble playing under those circumstances. The crowd was for him to an extent, but they were loud. They were close. They made it hard to focus. And the writers go on to say, quote, it was surely his popularity that deprived him of the title that day. End quote. Now, here's where it gets even weirder, if that was even possible. Again, the RNA says they're not going to decide until sometime Monday, which is when the playoff is being played. They gave Strath no assurances that he wouldn't be DQ'd eventually anyway, no matter how he did. And what he said to them was, well, I'm not playing until you make a final ruling. So all of a sudden you got a standoff and neither side was going to budge. The RNA didn't feel empowered to make a decision until they met formally, but they also didn't want to delay the playoff. Nobody's moving. You know, this is a rock and a hard place situation. So get this, Monday comes, Bob Martin shows up, doesn't even have to play. He just walks the course. And the reason he doesn't have to play is because Strath isn't there. And Martin becomes the open champion. Now, we don't know exactly what happened with the rules committee that day. But later, Strath was awarded second place officially. So it's clear they didn't disqualify him. Now, in terms of Strath's decision not to play... There is something a little odd with the discourse, both at the time and today. That's probably not going to surprise you. In the St. Andrews Citizen, this is a contemporary account, they write of Strath that, quote, his grounds for declining to play are perfectly reasonable and defensible. Had he played off the tie and won, and the committee then declared him disqualified, it would have placed him in a still more awkward position, end quote. Later, they note that, quote, we understand that Davey, while giving up the cup and money prize, was willing enough to play Martin for the honor alone. End quote. Meaning, okay, you get the official trophy, but let's you and I go at it mano a mano so we know who the real winner is. 
whether that was Strath's idea or whether somebody asked him, you know, would you be willing to do that? And he said, oh, I guess so. Hard to say. But in terms of the justification, you read elsewhere the same thing that, you know, Strath should be sympathized with for not playing. But I can't help thinking, should he? I mean, yes, this is a bizarre situation. Yes, the RNA should have made up their minds quicker. By the way, the RNA doesn't do anything quickly. They never have. But if I'm Strath and I want to win this thing, my thought would be, well, let me go out and beat Bob Martin and then let him take it from me. Be awful hard for them to take that Claire Jug away after I'm the winner, wouldn't it? As it happened, for one reason or another, they didn't DQ him. So if he had played and won, he would have been the champion, you'd think. To me, it's a strange, strange decision to just walk away. And I'm not quite on board with the idea that Strath is justified here. And again, not to sound like a broken record, but imagine today someone in a major just refusing to play a playoff, just walking off. Can't do it. The strangeness of 1876 knows no bounds. The only way I can rationalize Strath's decision, if he's not just doing it because he's scared that he's going to choke again, of course, or if he's being petulant, the only way I can rationalize it is through the prism of this tournament wasn't quite as big then. So walking away to him wasn't a legacy killer at the time. And he didn't know that later it would be a legacy killer. He had to be very upset at the RNA for everything, not just the lack of a ruling on time, but you know the public players being out there, the crowds being uncontrollable, the whole show. And it reads like he sort of just took his ball and went home. You know, he's too mad to play by their rules. You guys want to have a farce of a tournament? Fine, do it without me. And if you don't know what you're giving up historically, then you can almost put yourself in his shoes and start to justify it. In a USA Today article, golf historian Roger McStavick put it this way. He said, quote, it is one of the Open's great mysteries. It just goes back to the fundamental question of why didn't he play? And there is some dogmatism there. Logically, he had a good point. Why bother playing a competition that on the Monday they were going to decide might not be needed? I just feel so much regret. He could have been an open champion, but because of that point, he didn't become one. And Martin did. End quote. Now, as we said earlier, Strath's brother, Andrew, had died of tuberculosis, known as consumption at the time. Another brother had as well. This was the family curse. And Davy Strath comes down with it himself. He plays the Open the next year. He finished in a tie for fifth had another child, and by 1878, he is extremely sick. One of the prevailing ideas back then, you could almost call it like a medical trend, was that this thought, you know, that the climate in Australia was good for curing tuberculosis. It's not as damp, pure air. You know, I'm from Saranac Lake, New York, in the Adirondack Mountains, which filled the same role in America. You know, there were all kinds of tuberculosis homes up there. Many rich and famous people came to my town, up in the mountains, the clear air was about the best idea anybody had at the time before they found a cure for this thing. Sometimes it worked. So Davy Strath, incredibly sick, got on a boat to Australia in October 1878. He wasn't even 30 years old. He got worse on the trip. At one point, there is a heartbreaking footnote here that he gave the captain 20 pounds to take back to his wife and kids. Seems like he knew the end was coming. He did make it to Melbourne, but he had to be taken off the ship on a stretcher, and just 20 days after arriving, on January 28, 1879, he died and was buried in an unmarked grave. In fact, Davy Strath was lost to history to such a degree that for a long time a lot of people thought he had died on the ship. It took Noel Terry, one of the men who authored the book about the Straths. He was the historian for the Royal Melbourne Golf Club. It took him, after the year 2000, you know, 140 years later, to go find the grave through a great deal of research. And once he did, they raised money for a memorial stone to honor him in Melbourne. And it reads, David Strath, champion golfer, born St. Andrews, 1849, Died Melbourne, Australia, 1879. And in a Golf Australia newsletter, around that time, you can read a quote from Noel Terry about the 1876 Open. 
He said, In St. Andrews, he has always been regarded as the spiritual winner of that title. End quote. And that's fair enough. Bob Martin was apparently enraged by the fact that a lot of people took Strath's side in this whole thing. Martin went on to win one more Open Championship in 1885, right back at St. Andrews. So his legacy was protected. But Strath's was not. And the word I think of when I think of him now, Davy Strath, is lonely. You can imagine the loneliness he felt when his best friend, young Tom, died. And the loneliness of that day in 1876, when even though he was surrounded by thousands of people, everything was going wrong, a recurring golf nightmare was playing out, but worse than ever. Two years later, the loneliness on that boat to Australia headed to a strange land when he started to realize he was going to die. And he handed his money to the captain to bring back to his family, a family that he had to know he was never going to see again. The loneliness of an unmarked grave in a place far from home. And you think that through this sadness, maybe there is some solace in how they found his grave, how they put up a stone. Maybe that makes the whole thing less lonely many years later, at least marginally. But the ultimate takeaway here, the lesson, I don't know if you want to call it a lesson, but it's that Davy Strath was a pioneer in the truest sense, but in the end, a kind of hard luck pioneer. And sometimes the pioneers don't come home. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music for today's episode is called Bisketti Western 2. That's by Discovery Clear. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two more for you to check out. First is our weekly podcast. That's called The Loop. And we have a brand new podcast that people seem to really love. It's called Golf IQ. It's all about instruction hosted by Luke Kurdanin. So check both of those out. You can find them very easily. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.